is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating National Bible Week all week long. And this next story is a good one. You may know his name if you know the mixed martial arts, but if you don't, this next story is about Dutch-born Sebastian Bas Rutten, and he's considered by many to be the toughest guy on the planet, and he certainly looks and sounds the part. Here's his story. Bas My name is Boss Rutten. I became a professional mixed martial artist in 93. I started. I won three world titles in Japan. I won a world title in America, the UFC. I got inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. I hold a bunch of black belts on the different kind of arts. I was a Thai boxer. All that together formed me in this crazy person who's now in America, living the American dream, doing some TV work. My early childhood memories, there were not uh, such fun memories. I, I was a very sick kid. I was born covered in eczema. Then around four years old, I uh, attracted rheumatic fever, which had me in the hospital for three or four months. Uh, couldn't walk. Uh, then when I was six years old, we moved from a big city to a smaller village, and that's where suddenly the eczema came back, and it started also, I started having asthma attacks. You know, it, it was so bad. P people don't realize, it was not spots of eczema. I would have, there were many times that my hands were covered in eczema, it would be this thick on it, and if I would do this, like pus would come out. It was really disgusting. So I could understand other kids, you know, I had long sleeves, turtlenecks. I had to wear gloves, these medicine gloves, these white gloves. And that was before Michael Jackson was hip. So I wasn't hip, trust me, you know. And kids, uh, well, they spread from you. Nobody wants to hang out with you. Man, you have no clue, you know, lay in bed this. <laughs> for 24-7 for eight days. Try to do that, that's asthma. Not able to eat, not able to drink, like putting a wet cloth in your mouth because otherwise it shoots in your lung. It's really hard. And when I had asthma, my eczema cleared up. And when I had bad eczema, then the asthma will be better. So it goes hand in hand. A lot of kids have that. But uh, my poor mom, man, because in the middle of the night I would scratch it all off again. I would have a tile next to my bed and I would hit constantly because the, pe the itching, is so bad, it's better to have pain. You know, I would try to get the itching away by hitting a brick or hitting something that I couldn't break, you know, but when I could, I could hurt myself, at least the itching would go away. So the eczema was the worst, of course, for the kids, because kids bully you, they don't know what it is, they think it's contagious, so you know, you get called all kinds of names. Lapper was one of the, the ones that they really like to use. So, Kids didn't like me, teachers didn't like me. I had a whole bunch of schools that I visited because I got kicked off a bunch of them because I was too too much to handle. When I was 12 years old, we went on vacation to France and I saw a movie here, Enter the Dragon from Bruce Lee. Uh, it was a movie 17 years and older, so we were not allowed in. I was 12 and my brother was 14, but we found a way to get in. And we saw the movie and that was it. If I would become like that person, my bullying would be stopped. So when I came home, I started training, 
doing my own kind of stuff, asking my parents, please allow me to do martial arts, but they were always against it, thought it was violence, they're very conservative, my parents. Uh, two years later, after two years of begging, they finally bent and they said, okay, go, do it. Apparently I had a nick for it because it, I, I started picking on really fast. And within months I was dropping the adults with back kicks to the body and high kicks and my confidence started to rise. And then I got into a fight with the biggest bully in town who was always after me. Uh, they came on our bicycles. <laughs> they shouted again something, hey leper, watch out, your ears don't fall, whatever they shouted. And this time I shouted something back. So I put my bike on the stand uh, on the sidewalk and I said, no, I'm not going to face it now. No, I'm not going to stop. And they surrounded me, you know, like uh, kids do. And Shaki, the tough guy, he started, well, thought he was a tough guy, I guess. <laughs> started bouncing his chest in my chest, you know, that's what kids used to, kids used to do. And uh, challenging me to hit him. So I obliged. I gave him a right straight that knocked him out. And it, um, it broke his nose in the process. That was a problem. Because now he had to go to the hospital. And that meant that the police was called. And that meant that my mom and dad had a visit from the, the police. The things you hear as a kid, you know, what they say to you and everybody's making fun of you. It's a hard thing to do. You always think that it was a curse, but it, now you realize it was all a setup. It gave me the motivation. It gave me the, 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 the power to push through. As a young kid, you have no clue. If somebody would have told me, hey boss, in about 20 years from now, you're gonna be win a world title in that place. And I go, world title, what? Yeah, fighting, fighting, whatever, dude. You know, I would have never expected that. September. 21st, 1993 was my first time I was fighting in Japan. I lost three fights in total by submission, but that last fight really did something to me. This is when I said, okay, if I want to become something in this sport, I'm going to have to learn this game, this ground game. So I started being very vocal. I started asking every single person, every gym I went to, who wants to train with me, who wants to train? My poor wife, um, if I woke her up six times in the middle of the night because I would dream a submission, I would wake her up, I would put her in that submission, and she would go, oh my, I say, it's your shoulder, right? Your shoulder's hurting? Yeah, okay, I would write it down. I go, okay, next time I would try it out in my gym the next day. I would do it during the day. We would walk, walk through the house and say, honey, lean over. She leans over, I would get her in like a guillotine choke. I say, is this hurting your throat or are you getting dizzy now? She goes, I'm getting dizzy. I go, okay, that's a blood choke. So if I do this now, it's hurting your throat, right? Yeah, okay, good. I would write it down again and then try it out in gym. But it worked. We start doing it two, three times a day. Obsessed, the whole house has little post-its everywhere with combinations on it. <coughs> I just couldn't let it go. And it changed my entire career. I never lost a fight again. I won my next eight fights by submission. Well, seven by submission. One because I dominated him on the ground. And my last 22 fights, I never lost. I really needed a change at that time. I won so many fights in a row. It started to become kind of null. You know, like 19, I think, 19 fights I won at that time in a row. And I think that it relighted the fire in me to go to the UFC. I always wanted to go to the UFC. And what does this have to do with National Bible Week is what you're wondering. When we come back, as Paul Harvey used to say, you'll get the rest of the story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and let's continue with our story from Boss Rutan. Rutan is also known by the moniker El Guapo, which means the handsome one in Spanish. Boss just told us about his 19-fight winning streak. This string of victories earned Boss entry into the hallmark company of professional mixed martial arts, the UFC, which stands for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Let's return to Boss. I went to the UFC. They put a four-man tournament together, spread out over two shows. Um, I was facing uh, Chiyoshi Kosaka, a Japanese fighter who did really well in that organization, rings I was talking about. That was my first opponent. I stopped him in the, in the overtime, knocked him out. And then I went to the second one, and there was a fight between Kevin Randleman. I had a really tough fight against him. He really beat me up in the first four minutes. I mean, my eye socket, um, everything was filled with blood. I lost the contact lens. At that time, I was wearing contacts. Minus five and a half I have, so I have no vision pretty much. So with that one, co- I covered with blood, with the contact lens. The other one, I lost the contact. I couldn't see anything. I was swallowing my own blood because I was laying on my back. My nose was broke. You know, it was all cut up. And uh, we had a stand-up, and the referee said, hey, your nose is broke. You want to keep going? And I go, yeah, no, no, let's, let's keep doing this, let's keep fighting. And then I start slowly but surely start getting into the fight. And I start picking him apart and I slowly, I, it went to a decision, it went to a split decision victory, and it, which was in favor of me. And I won that fight. Um, by that time, I wanted to retire the heavyweight belt and going to be the first person who holds two belts in two different weight classes. That was my goal. But injuries started piling up. I had a bad case of tendonitis. It's, my tendons hurt extremely bad in both arms and once that hits it's uh, you're done in 1997 I moved to America from there I became in the, into the International Fight League I started doing a TV show here and there and then you know I met Kevin James can't stop it you cannot stop it he started asking me to come on the show a few times uh, King of Queens and then he started doing movies when the show stopped and I started doing appearances in his movies. And then the big movie came for me was uh, Here Comes the Boom with Kevin James. I wrestled, I think I know how to stop a shot. Ding, ding, boom, boom, elbow, elbow, boom, liver shot, bang, bang. Well, Kevin is a, is a, is a good Catholic and a, and a devout Catholic. So what he does, we were in Vegas and he has these speakers coming uh, to, to, to the set. If there's off time, why not learn a little bit? I didn't even know how deep he was into the faith. He was very smart about that. Because you tell that to me, I'm probably not going to do it. I'm like that little kid, right? You know, reverse psychology works with me probably. But uh, just said, hey. Somebody said, why don't you do that? You can smoke cigars, get a Coke. You know, we're outside, we're at the cabana. There's an AC in the cabana. Why not? I got some time to kill. Let's sit there with a cigar, just listen to what he had said. I'm so happy that that was the first talk I was sitting into because I got sucked in and that was it, Cha- changed my life. Faith has been in my life from the beginning. I was baptized, I did confirmation, everything, until I was about 12 years old and uh, we stopped going to church. We did weekly church first and then I remember that we went on Christmas and then my dad said, you know, if we only go on Christmas, that's a charade rather not go anywhere because otherwise it's stupid I feel bad about that so we never practiced the, the faith so when we stopped going to church well I, I, I was never really interested it's and you know as a kid going to a church is a kind of an intimidating thing there are all these crazy statues there they look at you nobody's happy 
looking back, I always ask that question, man. I, I wish, I, I, I wish, I really would have liked to know what would have happened. After that initial moment, you know, of course I went back home and, and I started reading the Bible, get an audio Bible as well so I can read and listen to it simultaneously or put it better in my mind. That's how I always thought. The first one that got me, that really changed me because I was that guy, when I read in the Bible that you're, oh, you're enslaved to drinking. Whoa, let's break this down. You're enslaved to drink. I'm a slave to alcohol. Oh, that I didn't like when I read that. And to me, that did a big thing. I'm not a slave to anything. It, nothing controls me. God controls me. I'll give that up, but nothing else is going to control me. For me, one line in the Bible, that was like, enslaved? No, I'm not a slave. I'm not a slave to that. You know, I was a heavy drinker. It stopped me from drinking. You know, it's, uh, and, and now I've got moderation. Something I never in my life had. My friends, they will notice a thing about me when I became a Catholic. I'm still the same guy, same fun. But people think that you completely changed and I'm in church all day praying, oh God, do this, okay. It's absolutely not like that. If I go to the gym, I'm not doing verses, and nobody knows. If somebody asks, they're gonna get it. I'll give it to them, you know, with a vengeance. You don't change a thing, but inside and other people, you become a completely different person. You become a better person. And, and, and please don't think, uh, oh, you change your night over life. Of course it doesn't work like that, you know, because everybody will jump on it. That's why it's, a, it's this great secret. God and where he is and where to find him. And in the beginning, you don't know. You you go, you know, where do I do it? If I pray, I don't feel anything. Or you're supposed to feel something. Or I don't feel anything. You know, it's, it's that thing you're looking for. It's that instant gratification that we are grown up so much now because everything is short attention span, right? But it's really cool. Once you start reading, you go, wow, I never knew this. And now suddenly you're reading for four hours. You know, I never had that. I never read books. I re I, later I started reading books, you know, but um, if something is interesting, you keep doing it. And this is the part where everybody at home is going to say, yeah, but I don't think this is interesting. But that's the thing. You think that because people tell you that. But it is interesting. Once you learn it, that's what I tell people. Why don't you give it a chance? Three months, do it. Just three months learn it. Force yourself to do it. I don't have the time for that. How long are you going to take? 30 minutes in the morning, you read about it, wake up half an hour so earlier. That's what I do. Very simple. You do that for a week, your body doesn't know anything else anymore. You made it a good habit. Done. You got your 30 minutes. Once you do that and you force yourself to do that, I guarantee you you're going to be invested because you're going to go, wow, this is cool. And you start seeing these things and you start saying these sayings with the verses, and the, but they start speaking to you and you see them in different ways. You can explain them in different ways. It's really, it opens you up. It really did that to me. I started to become very philo philosophical. You think for one second that you die and that's it. Well, then we live for nothing pretty much. What do we live for? If there's no greater thing that's going to come after it, there's 100%. You know, I refuse to believe that. And especially after everything that I experienced myself. The thing about Catholicism is that as soon as you start learning about it, real learning about it, you're hooked. You get in there because that it, it, it catches you. Everybody's looking for the truth. You have nothing to lose, but you have everything to gain. My question that I always ask to my students is a very simple question. How do you want to be remembered? Now let's apply this to fighting. 
How do you want to be remembered? As the guy with all the talent, but never trained really hard because he had all the talent and he lost because he was never in real shape. No. As the guy who cheated and used PED, performance enhancing drugs. No, don't want to be remembered like that. How do you want to be remembered as a fighter? As a good fighter, a guy who never gave up. A guy who, even if I don't become a champion, that other fighters say, oh, you're going to fight him? Oh, you, you get ready, that's going to be a tough fight. It's not about getting that championship belt. It's getting the recognition from your peers. Now, if that is very important to me, why don't I want the recognition from God, you know, and be the ultimate good guy? Be a badass, but on top of that, be also just a good person. I think there's nothing more important. And great job as always, Greg. And Greg Hengler, by the way, has a personal connection to Boss. He studied with him, trained with him uh, when he was living out in California. And what a story Boss tells about the impact the Bible had on his life. He, quote, it made me a different person, a better person. And this is a mixed martial artist. And so it's relevance for so many millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world. It's still a very relevant book, and we've heard from Martin Luther King or Will, Malcolm Gladwell, Johnny Cash, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, The Birds. Uh, just because you're not a believer doesn't mean the wisdom literature doesn't move you and doesn't have important lessons to teach. And by the way, this is all brought to us by the great folks at Essentials in Education, this celebration of National Bible Week. And they do remarkable work in the area of Bible literacy. And they also do it with the Constitution and literacy on that front too. And you can learn about what they do at teachthebibleinschools.org. There you'll find more information on their textbook, which is in 640 public schools and 44 states. And that book is the Bible and its influence. And it's not theology, folks. For all of you who are not Christians, it's just getting a better understanding of this remarkable book called the Bible and its influence on the world. Also, their latest curriculum for teachers, Wisdom Literature from the Bible, and that's Proverbs, Psalms, Job, and so much more. Go to teachthebibleinschools.org. Boss's story, here on Our American Story. Our celebration of National Bible Week here on Our American Stories. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the influence of the Bible on American literature, and specifically one American writer. By the way, the Bible influenced so many others that we thought it best to focus on just one. As a young man, American novelist and poet Herman Melville worked on a New England whaling ship. He came to share the fascination and terror the whalers felt toward the great beasts they hunted. His classic novel, Moby Dick, is nearly impossible to understand without a working knowledge of the Bible. In this great scene I'm about to read, the crew of the whaler ship Pequod hears a sermon and a hymn based on the story of Jonah in the Bible 
by the ship's resident preacher, Father Mapple. This is chapter 9 of Moby Dick, called The Sermon. Father Mapple rose and in a mild voice of unassuming authority ordered the scattered people to condense. Starboard gangway, there. Sideway to larboard, larboard gangway to starboard. Midships, midships. There was a low rumbling of heavy sea boots among the benches and a still slighter shuffling of women's shoes. And all was quiet again and every eye on the preacher. He paused a little, then kneeling in the pulpit's bows, he folded his large brown hands across his chest, uplifted his closed eyes, and offered a prayer so deeply devout that he seemed kneeling and praying at the bottom of the sea. This ended in a prolonged, solemn tone, like the continual tolling of a bell in a ship that's foundering at sea in a fog. In such tones, he commenced reading the following hymn, but changing his manner toward the concluding stanzas, burst forth with appealing exultation and joy. The ribs and terrors in the whale arched over me a dismal gloom, while all God's sunlit waves rolled by and lift me deepening down to doom. I saw the opening maw of hell with endless pains and sorrow there, which none but they that feel can tell. Oh, I was plunging to despair. In black distress I called my God, when I could scarce believe him mine. He bowed his ear to my complaints, no more the well did me confine. With speed he flew to my relief, as on a radiant dolphin born, Awful yet bright as lightning shone the face of my deliverer God. My song forever shall record that terrible, that joyful hour. I give the glory to my God, is all the mercy and the power. Nearly all joined in singing that hymn, which swelled high above the howling of the storm. A brief pause ensued. The preacher he slowly turned over the leaves of the Bible, and at last, folding his hand down upon the proper page, said, Beloved shipmates, clinch the last verse of the first chapter of Jonah. And God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Shipmates, this book, containing only four chapters, only four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of scriptures. And yet, what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us in this prophet. What a noble thing is that canticle in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the floods surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the water, seaweed, and all the slime of the sea about us. But what is it about this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? Shipmates, it is a two-stranded lesson, a lesson to us all as sinful men, and a lesson to me as a pilot of the living God. 
as sinful men, it is a lesson to us all, because it is a story of the sin, hard-heartedness, suddenly awakened fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally, the deliverance and joy of Jonah. As with all sinners among men, the sin of this son of Amittai was in his willful disobedience of the command of God. Never mind now what that command was or how conveyed, which he found a hard command. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. With his sin of disobedience in him, Jonah still further flouts at God by seeking to flee from him. He thinks that a ship made by men will carry him into countries where God does not reign, but only the captains of this earth. A bit later in this same chapter, Father Mapple concludes this remarkable sermon. Quote, As we have seen, God came upon him in the well and swallowed him down to living gulfs of doom and with swift slantings tore him along into the midst of the seas where the eddying depths sucked him 10,000 fathoms down and the weeds were wrapped about his head and all the watery world of woe bowled over him. Yet even then, beyond the reach of any plummet, out of the belly of hell, when the whale grounded upon the ocean's utmost bones, even then, God heard the engulfed, repenting prophet when he cried. And then God spake unto the fish, and from the shuddering cold and blackness of the sea, the whale came breaching up toward the warm and pleasant sun and all the delights of air and earth and vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. When the word of the Lord came a second time and Jonah, bruised and beaten, his ears like two seashells, still multitudinously murmuring of the ocean, Jonah did the Almighty's bidding. And what was that, shipmates? To preach the truth to the face of falsehood. That was all. This, shipmates, this is that other lesson. And woe to that pilot of the living God who slights it. Woe to him whom this world charms from gospel duty. Woe to him who seeks to pour oil upon the waters when God has brewed them into a gale. Woe to him who seeks to pleasure rather than to appall. Woe to him whose good name is more to him than goodness. Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. Woe to him who would not be true even though to be false or salvation. Yea, woe to him who, as the great pilot Paul has it, while preaching to others is himself a castaway. And those are the words written a century and a half ago by the great Herman Melville. And again, this story is unimaginable 
without a working knowledge of the Bible. He's quoting from it in and out. This pastor, Pastor Mapple, rallying the men on the Pequod. One of the great stories in American history. And my goodness, you almost can't read modern writing after listening to that. And my goodness, I did a disservice. My, I will love, I would love to hear a great professional actor read that. And the next time this does get read, it'll be read by someone like that. But I had to take my shot, folks. This is Lee Habib celebrating National Bible Week here on Our American Stories, the story of Herman Melville, the story of Moby Dick, American literature story, inextricably intertwined with the Bible, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating National Bible Week all week long this week, and you're listening to the birds and their song, Turn, 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 and all of these words come from, well, the Bible, Ecclesiastes to be more specific. Well, it turns out that this song was written in the 1950s by folk singer Pete Seeger. And all the lyrics, well, almost all of them, came from a book called the Bible. More specifically, Ecclesiastes. Seeger wrote and sang the song, and it came out on his album, The Bitter and the Sweet. Not much came of it. Also, there was a folk group called the Limelighters, and they too recorded the song. But the song became an international hit in late 1965 when it was adopted by the American band The Birds. The single dropped in October of 1965 and reached number one on the charts by December. Here's Pete Seeger. Most people have learned the song from The Birds records, so I sing their version of it rather than one I... Mine's okay, but it's... But uh, as long as they're singing it that way, I'll sing it their version. Uh, although never can tell what'll happen in the ages. It's an extraordinary poem, though. Uh, somebody made a whole, whole book out of it. Can't remember the name of the publisher. But they got a wonderful illustrator to uh, do illustrations for every single line in the song. I changed it. I, of course, I, they, they put the absolute, uh, the King James translation and then they print what I did with it. I, 
I rearranged it very slightly so it would rhyme better. Time of war, time of peace, a time you may embrace, and embrace and peace. Time of love, a time of hate, time of war, time of peace. Oh, time of, time of, time of love, a time of hate, a time of peace. I swear it's not too late. So I added one line of my own uh, to the King James version. But uh, what a what a poem that is. It it is a something worth considering. That a uh, the the world is full of opposites intertangled, the good and bad tangling up all the time. Nobody knows. God only knows. God only knows. And again, that's Pete Seeger talking about the song that he wrote that was essentially lifted from what he called an extraordinary poem. And that's what Ecclesiastes is. If you're not a believing Christian, it doesn't matter. You can still love these words and love the poetry and love the meaning behind them because that's the thing. You're listening and you're talking about these opposites and the competing duality of the nature of man and by the way Ecclesiastes was King Solomon of course he was the original author and these words were written somewhere between the 3rd and 10th centuries BC and yet they continue to have a power and relevance in the middle of the 20th century as rock and roll was establishing its dominance as a musical genre And now let's talk about another American writer, and that's Bruce Springsteen. And for anybody who's a fan, and my goodness, I don't think there are many artists of the 20th century who have more fans. He finished up a great run on Broadway. He's won a Grammy, a Tony, and, well, an Oscar, too, for his performance in Streets of Philadelphia. And playing and writing his whole life, Anyone who knows his music knows Bruce has written about just a few things in his life. About sin, about faith, about family, about work, and about God. That's his whole catalog, folks. It's all the music. It's why he's taken so seriously. But perhaps Bruce Springsteen's most direct song is reflected in his 1978 composition, Adam Raised a King, which was off his Darkness on the Edge of Town record. His politics may lean to the left, but his struggles, his writing, is always focused on eternal things, not political things. The song starts off like this. In the summer that I was baptized, my father held me to his side. As they put me into the water, he said how on that day I cried. We were prisoners of love, a love in chains. He was standing in the door. I was standing in the rain with the same hot blood burning in our veins. Adam raised a cane. Adam raised a cane. All of the old faces asked you why you're back. They fit you with position and the keys to your daddy's Cadillac. In the darkness of your room, your mother calls you by your true name. You remember the faces, the places, the names. You know it's never over. It's relentless as the rain. Adam raised a cane. Adam raised a Cain. In the Bible, Cain slew Abel, and east of Eden, Mama, he was cast. You're born into this life pain, 
for the sins of somebody else's past. Well, Daddy worked his whole life for nothing but the pain. Now he walks these empty rooms looking for something to blame. You inherit the sins. You inherit the flames. Adam raised a cane, lost but not forgotten, from the dark heart of a dream. Adam raised a cane. And there you have it. That's Bruce Springsteen, Adam Raised a Cane. Darkness is my favorite record of his. Of all of them, there are so many great ones. You've also heard the story tonight of the birds and National Bible Week. We're celebrating it all week long. Special thanks 
to Chuck Stetson at the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education. Their work on Bible literacy is so important. Their book, The Bible and Its Influence, it's in 650 high schools in America. Let's make it 6,000. And their curriculum, Wisdom Literature from the Bible, well, that's their latest offering. And you can find all of this at teachthebibleinschools.org. National Bible Week, here on Our American Stories. American stories, and you're listening to the Staple Singers, and it's hard to interrupt this song. And this single, well, one of the most famous of the Staple Singers. And if you ever get a chance, just go on YouTube and watch Mavis do her thing with Pop Staples. It's a beautiful thing. And we thought we'd play this song by the Staple Singers, not as the story of a song, which we love to do here on this show, but because the story we're going to hear is about a stapler. And not just any ordinary stapler. Here's Jesse. A candy apple red swing line stapler plays a prominent role in Office Space, a 1999 dark comedy by Mike Judge about a fictitious Texas software company and the everyday people who work there. I believe you have my stapler. One of those office dwellers is Milton Waddams, played by one of today's most prolific character actors, Stephen Root. He's an invisible nuisance that must be tolerated because he's a human on the planet, but he takes up space and and he's, he's not a bad human being to them. I don't consider Milton over the top at all. I think it's one of my subtlest roles actually. Even though it's a, a big character, it's, it's done really small. Milton is an overweight, aging nerd with prescription glasses so thick that you can't see his eyes. I don't care if they lay me off either because I told, I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time than then I'm, then I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. And, and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they were married, but then they switched. He devotes his work days to guarding his red swing line against his boss, who is constantly moving his desk and stealing his stapler. Hi, Milton. And, but What's I, happening? I said, Mil, did, we're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we I, I uh, have could some not, new people coming it, in, and no, we need all the space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in, just go ahead and it, pack up your it, stuff it, and move it down there, but no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was okay. I could stay. It, excuse me. 
Yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler. But Milton Wadhams eventually gets his revenge against the smug boss who takes his stapler away. I set the building on fire. By setting the building on fire. Now, Office Space barely earned back the $10 million it cost News Corp's 20th Century Fox to make the film. But in 2000, when it came out on video, it was clear that the movie was reaching a particular audience. Cubicle-dwelling computer programmers. For months, Swingline fielded demands for that red stapler pouring in by phone and email. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. There was just a slight little problem. Swingline didn't make bright red staplers. The one in the movie was custom painted by a prop designer. When real-life Milton Wadhamses found out they couldn't buy one from the manufacturer, they simply made their own creating a thriving black market on eBay for swing lines that were simply spray-painted red. Then, finally, three years after the red stapler buzz began, Swingline began selling a real red stapler, its basic 747 model, now with a new paint job. Office Space has turned out to be one of the more effective, if unusual, recent examples of product placement in films, now, the movie didn't just spark sales for Swingline, it invented the whole idea of a bright red stapler to begin with. Now, the sleepy Midwestern company that made the first top-loading stapler more than 60 years ago has discovered a new approach to marketing office products to younger generations. Best of all, the office space movie plug didn't cost Swingline a single dime. Through the magic of product placement, it's now common for advertisers to have their brands mentioned or used in feature films. Terms of these deals are among Hollywood's most closely guarded secrets. These days, they typically involve advertising or cross-promotion swaps worth millions of dollars. In Swingline's case, though, it was sheer luck, not money, that brought it into office space. I believe you have my stapler. Swingline executives didn't even recognize the marketing opportunity when the movie's producers approached them back in 1999. The company figured its mainstay customers were unlikely to trade up and declined the pitch. Still, the writer and director of Office Space, Mike Judge, best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead, was determined to keep the red stapler in his film. Swingline did not stand in his way. The new product is a big deal in the stapler community, says Clark Allen, a 29-year-old Dallas web consultant and host of virtualstapler.com, where people exchange stories about staplers and stapler injuries. The red staplers have quickly become the most popular item on the Swingline website, which is the only place you can buy them, $29 a piece. And that is the story of a stapler, perhaps the most famous stapler there ever was. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. But then they switched from the Swingline to the Boston stapler, but I kept my Swingline stapler because it didn't bind up as much, and, and I kept the staples for the Swingline stapler. Okay, Milton. And, oh, no, it's not okay because if they make me, if they, if they take my, my stapler, then I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'll set the building on fire. And great job as always, Jesse, and we got to order a couple of those Swingline staplers. The red ones get on it. And stapler, virtualstapler.com, stapler injuries, stapler stories. Jesse, I think that's a segment. I think that's a segment. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We sublime stuff, silly stuff. We do it all here on the show. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. And please sign up for the podcast. Again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and tell friends about what we're doing. If you're sick of the yelling and the screaming, the politics, the downers, and just, well, sick of it all. 
tune into our show for a little uplift, for a little laugh. You'll learn, you'll laugh, you'll think, you'll cry. That's our goal here. Make you feel something. Sometimes you'll learn something. And again, sometimes you'll just get a chuckle out of what we do, we hope. OurAmericanNetwork.org to learn more. And this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working to effectuate public policy that helps small businesses grow into bigger ones. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us this edition. Hey, you're going out and drilling a hole in the ground and expecting something to come out. If you're... If you're not praying about it, you got a you got a problem. You're listening to Jeff Sparks, one of the 12 family members in a 29-person oil and gas exploration company out of West Texas called Discovery Operating. And on this interesting day, I was surrounded by seven of them Sparks at one table. Jeff is in the second generation of their three generations in the business and is the firstborn son of patriarchs Don and Gwen. My dad was basically an entrepreneur, so my first job, I was seven years old, and he had a washeteria, and I just worked for tips. I didn't get paid anything. Now, my deal at that time is he would buy the pop, I could sell the soda, and I got 50% of the profit. I got 50% of the sales. I got 50% of gross. I made a deal as as long as my brother got the other 50%. (laughs) And here's Don's brother, Bynum. Well, I'd first like to say that I'm Don's much younger brother. (laughs) Six years. So when he talks about the fact that he sold soda pop and I got 50% of it, I would have been one at that time. So I don't really remember that story. But I feel like it's true. He's been a great big brother to me. No matter the truth, we do know this. Don's work in scheming would be illegal now. Working at that tender age and without the minimum wage. I understand child labor today and in my opinion it's a shame it's a shame that young people can't have opportunities to learn at an earlier age there was a guy that would come in frequently and knowing dry cleaning I understood clothing he had some of the nicest clothes that we took care of and he was the biggest tipper that I ever had so that made a impression 
And so I started looking and found out that what he did in the oil business was a shooter. Now, most people don't know what a shooter is, but in the early days, that's the way they stimulated the whales. And they did that with nitroglycerin. These guys would carry nitroglycerin in a truck out, drop it in the whale board, and that's the way the whales were stimulated. Essentially, they were detonating dangerous explosives. Most shooters didn't survive to have long lives, but they made good money during the time period that they did that. When I was in the eighth grade, I was asked to write a report and list two things that I might want to do. I came up with this one, and of course my mother's family was a farming family, so I had those two. When I learned all about what a shooter did, I decided, you know, running around with nitroglycerin was probably not what I really wanted to do, but I did read about a petroleum engineer, and that's the way I decided that. Petroleum engineers design and develop methods for extracting oil and gas from below the Earth's surface. I joined the Navy in 1957 when I graduated from high school. I was going to see the world. I wasn't planning on meeting Gwen and getting married, but uh, that was the. <laughs> but that's all right. It worked out just fine. What, was Don planning on more of a bachelor experience around the world? I, well, I don't know. I'm not saying I have no idea what it had been like. That's for sure. Well, our first date, we were double dating, and I had a date with one of his fraternity brothers, and we played bridge. And, and since he knew I played bridge, his folks... Asked him about a week or so later, did he want to play bridge? And he couldn't find any of his friends, and so he called me. And so our first actual date was playing bridge with his parents. <laughs> How about that? Was Gwen nervous? Well, I was nervous, but I really did like his parents a lot. She made that comment more than once, that she wasn't <laughs> sure about me, but she sure liked the folks. <laughs> I came here with Shell for a short period of time. Then the service called me and went in active duty. In the service, I moved around quite a bit, but most of the time I was on a ship. The moving was up to her. When we got back to Midland, we'd been in Rhode Island, we'd been in California, we'd been in Washington State and Virginia. She had had to move all those times. We got to Midland and I was with Shell. But as you looked at the major oil company, you realized if you stayed, you were gonna be moving. We liked Midland, Texas. We chose to stay here. When we made the decision we were gonna stay in Midland, we just decided how we were gonna do it. And that's the way we got started with Discovery Operating. That's certainly one way to do it, to create a business where you want to stay. A very risky way. We had about $10,000 in the bank, and so we decided that that was enough that we could live on for a year if I took on some more piano students. So I increased my enrollment for teaching piano, and uh, 
we were able to make it that year and things were going pretty good after the first year and so we were able to do it. You couldn't help but be a little bit nervous but I really don't remember being very worried about it. I just, we're kind of survivors. I just knew that we could do whatever we had to do. And the whole family agreed about the greatest trial that they've survived. Here's Jeff. The bust of 1986, where the oil price dropped from $30 down to eight. So, um, <clears throat> when your income is based off oil and gas and it goes from 30 to eight, well, you, you basically lost 65% of your income. So, um, when that happened, um, and, um, and Dad and I and Kevin uh, switched weekends that we would be out pumping. And Bynum. <laughs> this was a running family joke throughout the interview. For some reason, everybody kept forgetting poor Bynum. Bynum went to the field some, too. <laughs> yeah, we all went to the field. And, I mean, the income dried up. And then he was born in April of 86. Jeff's first child, Jared. So it was, timing was not real good, but <laughs> so dad, dad said, well, Kevin and I were going to take pay cuts because we, we just were, that was the, we were principals, but, um, and by no, we're, we're all principals, and so we were taking pay cuts. But Dad set the staff down, said, you know, things aren't as rosy as what they should be, and um, we can all take uh, a pay cut, or I'm going to have to let one person go. And they elected to all take a pay cut. That's an expanded family. We feel like. Discovery is an expanded family, and really, we believe that. And the people that work here are good, honest, hardworking people. You don't have to worry about if they call in and say, you know, I'm sick today, they're sick. And, uh, and you can depend on them to get whatever needs to be done. It's a great atmosphere to work in. And even then, when we all had to do that, Nobody complained. We worked it out, and it worked fine. And you're hearing and listening to the Sparks family, and they have an energy exploration company in Midland, Texas, called Discovery Operating. And you just heard what so many family businesses go through, and it is a family. And everybody took pay cuts together, and there was no one, no one fired when oil prices, well, like just dumped out from 30 to $8 a barrel, a catastrophe, if that's your business. And when we come back, more of our American Dreamers story, the Sparks family story, here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we could send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the Sparks family, whose West Texas energy company, Discovery Operating, has 12 family members in it across three generations. We return to Bynum Sparks. I worked in the panhandle on a different farm and ranch. It was on my dad's side of the family in the summers. They were trying to teach us to make a living, I think. I made a dollar and a quarter an hour. And Don didn't tell this part, but he asked the uncle that he worked for why he only made a dollar and a quarter an hour when he was doing the same work that some of the other... $200 a month is what I got. Okay. Well, he said... Uncle Luther told Don the reason was is because our dad did not want us making so much money that we did not want to go to college. And so so that's, you know, that's, that's I got a dollar and a quarter an hour. So anyway. And here's Jeff on his first job. I mowed yards in the summertime with two younger brothers and we had Gosh, we even had business cards made up to Sparks Lawn Service or Sparks Brothers Lawn Service. And we had a pretty good-sized business. Oh, we had three lawnmowers, just two that would operate at one time. (laughs) Mom and Dad bought the lawnmowers, paid for the gas. We had no expenses, you know. We learned how to work, we just didn't really learn how the profit loss was, because there was no loss, it was all profit. Even at $3 a yard. So, I was gonna be a petroleum engineer. It was between that and a musician. And, And I looked at what most musicians make, and I looked at what petroleum engineers make, decided, I'll do this as a hobby, and I'll be a petroleum engineer and make some money. This money thing seems to be a common story in the Sparks family. It, it, yeah. It wasn't just money. I mean, it was, you looked at, if, if you were successful in the music business, and you looked at what was going on in the music business in the late 70s, you're traveling around nine months out of the year. Uh, they were notorious of not having a good family life at all or getting into drugs or whatever. It just didn't seem to be a lifestyle because I really uh, wanted to have a family. I wanted to get married and have a family and just be a dad. Ooh, not many young men talk that way. I didn't. I didn't admit to it when I was younger. I mean, that is not something that I was going to go out and talk about. But it was in the back of my mind. Here's the kid who exists because Jeff fought that way, Jared. Remember when I was young, my nana, the slave driver. Uh, I would spend the summer working across all the yards. That's the second comment about you being tough. So it's like you're the toughest mom. Just because I am. She owns it. But but it was was actually a really nice experience to grow up. I literally grew up next door to my grandparents, right next to my aunt and uncle. I saw all my cousins. When I 
was looking at going to college. I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I had kind of an interest in computer and electrical stuff, but my grandfather was like, "Well, why don't you know? Why don't we go to lunch?" Uh, he took me to <laughs> took me to the Petroleum Club, and he sat down. I was like, "Well, tell me, you know, why why were you thinking about you know doing computer or electrical engineering?" And I said, "Oh, I don't know. I've got an interest in it." He goes, "Well." You know, have you seen some of the statistics? And he gave, showed me this piece of paper, and it said, you know, like at University of Texas, you know, the average, like, ninety-two percent of graduating seniors had a job, and computer and electrical was like forty-six percent. And you look at the average starting salary, petroleum was up there near the top. And I was like, well, maybe I should think about petroleum. Don was. Uh pretty well prepared for this supposedly casual lunch with his grandson. Well, I mean, I... I, I, uh, You were on the the advisory board. Yeah, I I was was on the advisory board of the University of Texas, petroleum engineering. (laughs) So so I had all the... I have all the information. And, um, you know... I wanted to make a good case because I really wanted him to be a petroleum engineer. He did uh, <laughs> I haven't been to the petroleum clubs, and I, I assume it's a nice place, so I'm sure a part of you decided you didn't take them to McDonald's or Chick-fil-A for lunch, right? You, you took them to a place, hey, look what this career can bring you. That's Well, that's true, and I've, uh, I've actually, I take all my grandchildren there and, and have a talk with them before they go to college. Now, I haven't been able to get any others to be petroleum engineers yet, but I still got one more shot, and uh, uh, and she'll be graduating next year, so I've got one I'll be taking to the petroleum club, and we'll have our down-to-earth talk. I'm still twisting arms to try to see if I can convince her. I wish I had known this because she came into accounting the other day to get some accounting and finance advice. So, looks like we're up against each other. We should compete within the same company. Yeah. That's exactly right. These are good problems to have. You never want to be competing with Pop. Yeah. After a couple summers working for Discovery, I kind of thought I wanted to try something different. So I actually went to go intern with a major oil company. And I interned with Chevron. Really enjoyed the experience. I said, well, I want to see something even different. I want to go work offshore. So the next summer, I worked with Chevron again, but they put me in Lafayette, Louisiana, working offshore. But when it came time to looking at where to go work, I had two offers. I could work for Chevron where I had a, a job actually with Discovery Operating. And I'll be candid, the, the job offer with Discovery was actually better. But I had a desire to maybe work overseas. I had an expectation of what it was going to be like to work with the family. It looked good, but I just knew that I was going to be in Midland probably my entire life. And at that point, I wasn't sure if that was what I wanted. I enjoyed my time working for Chevron, learned a lot. I was advancing up the ranks. I spent almost 10 years at Chevron. Got to the point where I had built my own team. I had three engineers, a geologist, and a tech that most of them I had hired myself. And I had been told that I had potential to go pretty high up. They wanted to put me in some special programs, but the programs were the program that my grandfather had talked about 
you're going to be moving and you're going to be moving often. Whenever the company says you move, you move. And I told them, I don't want to do that. I was in Houston at the time. That's where I met my wife. We had our first two kids there. I enjoyed being in Houston. It was in Texas. It was close to get home to see family. And I said, I, I'm not sure I want to go any further up. I could start to see also some of the politics starting to break through. I could play the game. I could probably play the game as good as anybody. But I didn't like to have to play the game because it was frustrating when I grew up and saw how they worked business at Discovery Operating and then seeing it from Chevron going, those are some stupid decisions. Why are you doing that? Because I was relying on seeing what it was like working at Discovery. One example was at Chevron, I had seen it where they would drill wells knowing full well that they probably weren't going to make money, but they had committed to Wall Street that they were going to drill X number of wells. And they were going to drill those wells whether they were good or not. That just didn't sit well with me. And when we come back, more of this remarkable, actually delightful family. And by the way, that's what we like to share with you, that that families work here in this country. They're not perfect families. There aren't any. But my goodness, the beauty, the joy that family can bring. And by the way, family businesses can be a lot of fun. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the Sparks family story, Midland, Texas in a way, the story of all those families there here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of the Sparks family in Midland, Texas. When we last left off, Jared Sparks was rising up at the energy giant Chevron, but the prospect of having to move a lot and the politics inside a big company was starting to wear on him. It was 2015. The oil price had collapsed again. I wasn't worried about losing my job, but I knew being a supervisor, we were going to have to do some heavy layoffs. I was told 30 to 40 percent. I had been home for Christmas and my family sat down with me and said, you know, we're really proud of you and everything that you're doing at Chevron, but we just want you to know you're always welcome to come back and work for the family. Go back to work in Houston after Christmas and some of the details start to work out. They were going to offer more or less a severance package for people and they could volunteer to leave. Doesn't mean that Chevron was going to let you leave, but you could raise your hand and and ask to be let go. That's quite a strange thing to say. Can I be let go pretty please? And I looked at what my package would be worth, and I was like, well, that'd be enough to definitely move back to Midland. And my wife, she's an only child. Her parents lived in Tomball, which was the Houston area, but it's still a 45-minute hour drive to go see him. And... I said, well, maybe we should move back to Midland. She goes, oh, I don't know. Well, let's pray about it. So we prayed about it for a good week, hoping just that maybe something would show us what we needed to do. We'd gone to church on that Sunday. Our pastor, he'd been on sabbatical for a few weeks. He comes back, it was his first sermon, and it was from Ezra, which is not a book of the Bible that I could recall ever having a sermon being preached from. 
the sermon was essentially on stepping out in faith. It was the time when the Jews were post-Babylonian conquest. Nebuchadnezzar has passed. Cyrus is allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem if they want to, to rebuild the temple. And Ezra is talking about the Jews that step out and return home. He finishes the sermon by saying, you know, the Lord may be calling you to step out in faith and do something radical. It may mean you need to leave Houston's First Baptist. You may need to leave Houston. <laughs> and I, I, I look at my wife, and my wife looks at me, and we're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I think that's our answer. So we decided that day we're going to see if we can be let go uh, so that we can move to Midland. So the next day, Monday, I go in, and I talk to my boss, and I say, you know, hey, boss, I... I think I'm going to raise my hand and be be asked to let go. He goes, really? Man, wow, Uh, did not see that coming. Well, I'm really glad you came and talked to me today because we were being asked by the executive management above me to start locking people in positions, people that we said, we need business continuity. You were the first person on my list that I was going to lock into his role so you don't have to go through this lengthy layoff process. But that means that you weren't, you weren't be eligible to leave and get paid. But since you came and talked to me today, now I can let him know that I don't need to lock your position down and we'll do something else. He's like, if you'd waited one more day, I, it would have been set in stone. You, you wouldn't have gotten paid to leave. And things just really seemed to work out. The Lord had opened up all the right doors for me to move to Midland. I can tell you, since I've been here coming up on two years with Discovery, it was absolutely the right decision. I've enjoyed being back in town. I know my wife has enjoyed being here. It took a few months to get adjusted, but she's enjoying being close to family, having the help with the kids. Well, that was one of the things you forgot to tell him. Our offering free babysitting. babysitting. Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. And 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 the other thing he forgot is when he told his in-laws that you were moving to Midland. They said, "Okay, okay, we'll move." And my 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 in-laws moved. Yeah, the in-laws actually got here before we did. I mean, I gave up, I'll, I'll be candid again, I gave up I gave up a bigger paycheck being at Chevron, but I think that the intangibles of being close to family know that, you know, if my kids grow up to want to do baseball or soccer, that I can go do that and not worry about being overseas somewhere, because I knew that's where I was going to end up having to go is overseas at Chevron. So... It's kind of funny. You wanted to go overseas by the time you were going to get offered. You didn't want to go overseas. I didn't want to go anymore. <laughs> Next up is Jared's cousin, Gray. Very similar to Jared. Grew up at the compound. Uh, you know, grew up across the street from my cousins with my grandparents right there. Worked in the yard from as young as I can remember. I was out in the yard with working with Nana. I won't call her a slave driver, but... <laughs> but he's pretty nice. But <laughs> And when I was really young, I wanted to be an astronomer. I loved looking at the stars, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world until my dad kind of told me the numbers of what you know astronomers make as opposed to what everyone else makes. And 
And so from a pretty early age, I decided, okay, maybe that's not it. And so I decided Discovery seems like a pretty cool option. And where I met my wife was at school. We met on my spring break trip my senior year. We were on a cruise and I saw her and pretty much fell in love right then and there. I saw her from across the dance floor and fell in love right there. And I knew I was coming back to Midland after I graduated. So, you know, this was March of my senior year, and I knew coming back to Midland, my options were going to be slim. <laughs> and so when I saw her, I, I locked in, and, and <laughs> I, was, I was going after her. And three, four months later, we were engaged and been back at Discovery for just over two years now. And Alex, the in-law, what my family calls the outlaws, is crazy enough that she actually wants to work with them sparks, too. My direct boss is Bynum's son-in-law, so he he gets it, too, that he like he's a part of it, but also can look at them, some, you know, the sparks sometimes and go, oh, those silly sparks, you know. <laughs> it's fun. That's that where we... I put you on the spot. What's so silly about them? <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> There's a stubborn line in there, but it, but it's a good stubborn. It's a good stubborn. No, but they, they work so well. They do, though. They work so well together, though, even though when, like, you, you know, you can tell if, if one has a differing opinion than another, it, they always manage to work through it and get to a good common goal. But it is fun to see how many sparks you can get on a... <laughs> On a subject. I love it. <laughs> Here's Bynum Sparks speaking because Gwen thought he should. Thanks, I need to say that. Yeah. Just thanks, everybody. Because we've been monopolizing. Well, I enjoy listening. <laughs> I think one thing I would like to, to say, we were very fortunate in the home that where we were raised. And... Um, so I'd like somebody, I'm not sure I can do it, but somebody to talk about how Dad took care of Mother. Oh, well, I will do that. My mother had Alzheimer's, and she lived, probably had it longer than 10 years, but she got to where she couldn't uh, speak or do anything. My dad took care of her day in, day out, He'd get up, get her up, help dress her, put on her makeup so they could go out to lunch and have lunch. He just took care of her, never was embarrassed. And when my second son, Kevin, when he got married, he wanted his grandfather to be the best man. And the reason he said is he showed what the marriage vows are about. Does that work? <laughs> And uh, so, uh, Gwen's take on that was a little better. She doesn't think this is funny, but I do. Uh, she, but when we got married, she she we we told it in our family. We don't really don't really believe in divorce. We think the wedding vows are important. Whenever she let me know that her family didn't believe in divorce either. Murder was okay. <laughs> I took that literally. And it's worked real well, as you can see. I'm going to say the last thing if we're finishing up. 
I look around this table, we've got three people that will lead this company in the future. Gray, Jared, and Alex. Engineering, land, accounting. How could, it, how could I be any more blessed as to see the future in the good hands? You can't ask for a more blessing than that. And for people who can't see it because we're on the radio, you're crying talking about it. Yeah, well, I try not to. Uh, there's something about getting older that your emotions sometimes kind of get, get, uh, get the best of you. And what a story. What a family. And we're tearing up here a little bit, too. Just listening to a tough Texas man, a tough Midland Texas man, holding back tears, looking at the blessings of God and the blessings of a beautiful family. And by the way, Kevin Sparks told a local newspaper, quote, one of the reasons I believe we're able to continue to work together is because we all share a common faith in Christ. It's that concept of serving others, and I think it would be really challenging to work as a family for as many years as we have if that wasn't our shared commonality. His mother Gwen added that the grace to forgive each other is another reason the family has been so successful in business. How to be a family, we can all learn from a family like the Sparks family, their story, Midland, Texas's story, in a way, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 